was uh, 14 years old, I had occasion to stay on a dairy farm for a week, which was a big deal to me because when I was 14 years old, I really thought I wanted to be a dairy farmer. Uh, that was sort of my dream. I'm, I'm not sure how I got there, but uh, uh, that's, that's what I wanted to do, or that's what I thought I wanted to do. And so I was thrilled at this opportunity. Uh, and we did lots of cool, you know, sort of country things, uh, uh, working around the farm, going uh, swimming in the irrigation ditches. Um, uh, I was invited one morning to help with the morning milking. And the, the dairyman there, he said, well, we start at 3 a.m. Okay. And uh, he, figured, he figured he would come into my room, you know, 5, 5.30, at, at near the end of the early morning milking session. He'd wake me up, and I could join him for the last part. No, I set the digital alarm on my Timex, and I was up at 3 a.m., and I was out there in the pitch-black darkness watching them wash the cows as they were coming into the barn to be milked. And it was very exciting. I loved the whole process and all the automatic milking machines and, and uh, just all of it. And then there were the meals. Uh, Dairyman's wife was a very good cook, but the best part of the meals is there was a constant supply of raw milk. Now, I don't know if you've ever had raw milk before. It hasn't, hadn't been homogenized, had none of the cream has been taken out of it. It's just what it is. It comes out of the cow, and then they refrigerate it, and you drink it, and it's like a milkshake. It's so good. It's just filled with that cream, and it's just delicious. It was wonderful. I think I gained about 10 pounds over the course of the week just swilling raw milk at every occasion. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I never became a dairy farmer. Uh, however, I still have uh, a probably inappropriate love for, for milk. I consume an enormous amount of milk. My wife will testify to this. Uh, we purchase enormous amounts of milk. You know, we have a refrigerator in the garage, and I joke with people that, you know, most guys have a, a, a beer fridge out in the garage. I have a milk fridge out in the garage where there is usually stored three to five gallons of milk because our household goes through about a gallon a day. Uh, I probably love milk too much. So some years back when I was uh, working in Colorado, um, one of our members, we were having dinner at one of the members' houses, and he got talking to me about his, his views about milk. Um, they did not purchase milk, they did not keep milk in the household, and he felt that it was weird, it was uh, unhealthy that we, we drink milk. And his argument was basically that human beings are the only species on the planet that never weans itself off of milk. Now, I'm sure I offended him as my jaw sat on the floor utterly aghast that this person would assail my deep, deep affection for milk. Ah, uh, I didn't say anything at the time. I just sort of stared blankly at him. Uh, but going through my mind was, uh, my, my God says that the promised land flows with milk and honey. I am going to have my share of both. But here's the reality. Milk definitely has its limitations. In Scripture, milk is, uh, is used as a, 
a, a, a metaphor for the basics, the simple things. And we can spend all of our time on the basics, on the simple things, and we miss the meat of the word. And so the writer of Hebrews says uh, in, in chapter 5, you, you know, you should be teachers by now, but you're still babies. You, you still need the basics. You still need milk. He says, uh, sorry, verse 13, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, most Christians will acknowledge that spiritual maturity is a good goal. That's, that's, that'd be a good thing to obtain some spiritual maturity. Few Christians, I find, recognize the necessity of attaining any spiritual maturity. But there is a necessity in this verse. It says, in fact, that without constant use, we will not have trained ourselves to distinguish good from evil. We imagine that this business, you know, when, when Eve reaches up and snatches this fruit from the tree and gives some to Adam and they eat it, and now they have the knowledge of good and evil, we imagine that the knowledge of good and evil includes discernment, that it is the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. The reality is, is quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, the more acquainted we become with evil, the more difficult it is for us to distinguish between good and evil. It's kind of like uh, if you troll around the internet, uh, you, you've probably seen these ads. You're going to your favorite websites, seen these ads that say, one weird trick. One weird trick, you're going to lose 10 pounds a month. One weird trick, and, and uh, all, all your problems are going to be solved. This one weird trick. And you click on it, and it makes some promises that are too good to be true, and then there's some sort of herbal supplement or something. You're going to pay three times its actual value in order to achieve this one weird trick. The pitch is as old as Eden. Satan comes into the garden, and he says to Eve, I know this one weird trick, and it's going to make you just like God. And that's where it all starts to go wrong. We want this easy way to get to whatever it is that we're after. The lie gets us into sin, but then we make the mistake of trying to use the same dynamic, the same one weird trick to somehow get ourselves out of sin. We want some easy... Uh, formula. The reality is that our participation in disobedience makes us aware of the potential of evil. See, every one of us have, have lived out this same story. At some point in your life, you reached a time when you knew something was off limits and you decided to pursue it anyway. Crossing that line, moving into that space of here's something I know I'm not supposed to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, makes us instantly aware that there is a gulf between right and wrong, that there is good and there is evil. It makes us aware that it exists. What it doesn't do is teach us the difference between the two. 
We've been reading through Colossians. It's, it's the first part of this study is all in Colossians. And, and Paul has been talking to us about the supremacy of Christ in all things. And now he's going to go through in the next few passages, and he's going to talk to us about the inferiority of everything that we try to replace Christ with. Why is that important? Well, it's important because in a world where there's both good and evil and we have not trained ourselves up, we have not matured to the point where we can distinguish between the two, they often get confused. We often confuse what should belong to Jesus and let other things uh, have supremacy in our life. Only by constant use. Paul says, do we train ourselves, or the writer of Hebrews says, only by constant use do we train ourselves to distinguish between these two. And this distinction, this difference between good and evil, is made very complicated by two persistent myths in our world. Particularly, uh, we particularly observe these in Western culture, but I think they're probably universal. And the first myth is this. There is a secret solution to human happiness. The whole one, one weird trick pitch is born out of this idea that there's some secret that I don't know. People have left me out of it. And if I knew this secret, it would solve all of my problems. One weird trick and you'll, you'll, you're, you're, all that fat will turn to water and just wash off of your body. That would be fantastic. One weird trick, and cancer will be cured, and diabetes will be cured, and acne will be cured. It'll all get better. One weird trick, and we'll reverse the aging process. Hmm. It doesn't end there, though. We can look at those ads and go, if, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true, right? But go to the self-help section of any bookstore, and what will you find? Another version of the same thing. All kinds of books with titles that begin with things like Seven Habits, Five Steps, The Power Of. All of them designed to reveal to us some secret that's going to somehow make life automatically better. And there's a little bit of truth in most of these, but it is an incomplete truth. Probably the most overt example of this in our culture right now is actually a book and a movie called The Secret. And the, the, the proposal behind The Secret is that there is this secret formula, this secret methodology that is going to bring to you all of the things that your heart desires. Well, the secret is uh, not that secret, and it's not even all that new. Really, it's sort of a uh, rehashed version of what you could have read uh, some decades ago in a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. It is uh, what we call attraction theory, and it's the idea that if you just focus constantly on what it is that you want, what you want will come to you. The secret adds another little sort of uh, component, a little mystical component. It says that because Einstein tells us, he, Einstein informed us that everything is energy, 
that all matter is energy, if you cultivate the right energy of your, in yourself, it will align with the energy in the universe, and the universe will make into matter the things that you desire. Sounds reasonable, right? Yeah, that'll work. Now, again, a little bit of truth. There's a little bit of truth in all of this. You ever, ever start off your day having a bad day? And what do you notice all day long? Everything that goes wrong. You start off having a good day, and what do you notice all day, all day long? Everything that goes right. It's the same day, just a matter of what my mood and my decisions cause me to focus on. So there is, a, there is some truth to the idea that if we focus positively on the things that we're trying to do, and everything that lends itself to our being successful will be part of what we're aware of as we make our way through the day. What's also true is that I, if I reject anything that stands in the way of what it is I'm trying to do, I tend to make really foolish decisions because I don't consider the downside of anything. There's a little bit of truth, but not enough. I should point out that a lot of men and women dressed as preachers often hawk this same snake oil to their unsuspecting members, selling health, wealth, and cheap grace because somehow we think we can offer the cure without exploring sacred things. Here's the real truth behind all of this. Yeah, I think one of the reasons these myths exist is because there's just enough truth in them that comes from a truth that we sort of inherently know, inherently understand. One truth here is that humanity is, uh, or excuse me, one of the second myth, I should tell you before I get too far. The second myth is that humanity is an existential threat and solution unto itself. So on the one hand, there's a secret that's going to make me successful and happy. On the other hand, I am my own problem. I am, I am an existential threat to myself, and I'm also, uh, I also have the solution to the problem. As This is as familiar as the nightly news. We are our own demise. We have brought about doom and gloom on ourselves, and yet we are also the answer. Our doom is sure if we do nothing, but we can save ourselves if we just act now. Now, there's a lot of versions of this. Some of the most popular right now is, uh, first of all, uh, 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 some sort of totalitarian regime, right? Either our government or some other world government is by force going to take over and dominate everything, and it will destroy our lives. Might be nuclear war, or really any war in which our weapons have the potential to not only eliminate our enemies, but eliminate ourselves. Might be technology in general, specifically, uh, often we speculate about artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, we're going to create machines that are so smart they begin to take over and destroy life as we know it. There's the, the uh, plot line to a lot of your favorite movies. 
Might be pandemic. We have a little bit of experience with that now, don't we? Pandemic is going to come along. It's going to wipe out world populations. Might be economic collapse. Climate change, of course, is always a popular one. Uh, ecosystem collapse. Supposedly species are becoming extinct at a faster rate than ever. Um, and now one of the really popular ones for the, uh, in the moment is inequity. Somehow these uh, differences between people groups is the undoing of the world. Now here's the thing. All of those have a little bit of truth in them, right? All of those have, there are some things there to, to be concerned about. There are some things there, honestly, some of them are absolutely terrifying. There's a little bit of truth to most. There is a lot of propaganda that surrounds all of them. And throughout it all, the one thread that sort of ties it all together is this potency myth, this myth that we have the power to undo the mess that we've made. What I find interesting about this myth, this potency myth, is that when, whenever we're proposing solutions to the problems that we've supposedly created or maybe really have created, our solution to an existential threat is often another existential threat. So, for instance, if you want to answer the problem of overpopulation, you can answer it with war, pandemic, and famine. If you want to answer the problem of climate change or a global pandemic, you address it with things that cause an economic collapse. If you want to answer inequality in the culture, honestly, if you want to answer anything, the answer that we often go to is some form of totalitarianism. Let's just turn over all our power to the government, and the government will solve our problems for us, and then they'll become our problem. So you take these two myths combined, and they are basically working in tandem. There is a secret out there that somehow unlocks our potential, and we are dependent upon our unlocked potential to solve our own problems. A little bit of truth in both of these things. But here's the truth that's a problem. These myths form the foundation of every false gospel. Stay with me now. I know this gets a little complicated. These myths form the foundation of every false gospel. You see, here's the truth, the little bit of truth that is woven through all of this is that there is, in fact, an existential problem for humanity. There is a threat to all of us. That threat is death. Now, when humanity considers existential threats, it seems to concern itself with how we end up dying. We have to take a step further back and go, no, actually the problem is that we die. That's the existential threat to humanity. If we can't solve that problem, what does it matter how you get there? We're all headed for death. And there is a secret to life, which we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the secret. We know these things to exist, and I believe at some level, 
all people know these things to exist. We know that there's a threat and we know that there's a solution. We know these things because this is part of how God is calling us to himself, wanting us to seek him out. But instead, what do we do? We create our own threat and our own solution so that we can live in that delusion because God's reality is not the reality that we think we want. But if you can't solve the problem of death, does it really matter whether or not you solve any other problem? Somehow, no matter how far-fetched the pitch, no matter how too good to be true it is, we'd rather believe that than deal with the truth. And in fairness, let me just say that some of the truths that we're banking on, some of the truths that we stand by as believers, as followers of Jesus, are pretty outrageous truths. They're, they're out there. There's a reason that people have a hard time accepting these things, because they're so far outside of our experience, we have a hard time believing that they're real. One of those outrageous truths is that the world, as God made it, was really good. It was really good. And I don't mean good like, yeah, in, in my experience, that was good. And I don't mean good like that's, that's good enough for government work. I mean, it was actually good without qualification, without limitation. What God created when he created this world and when he created you it was all good. And we have a hard time accepting this outrageous truth. And you know why? None of us have ever known that much goodness. None of us have ever had the opportunity, outside of Adam and Eve, no human ever has, none of us have ever had the opportunity to live in a world that was purely good, unbroken. We've broken it. We've broken it so much so that we now doubt its existence. Another outrageous truth that we have to wrap our brain around is that there is a proactive and pervasive evil at work in the world. I find that people are, are, are agnostic about evil in the same way that they're agnostic about God. We sort of doubt that evil and a personified evil even exists. We know that there are evil things and we know that there are evil people, but we're resistant to the idea that things are trending towards evil because evil is a personality at work. And yet the worst atrocities in human history took shape long before they reached their fruition, took shape in times when the rest of humanity was doubting that much evil was possible. If you think about Eden, in Eden there's one rule, and of course with that one rule, that's kind of like when you uh, 
uh, you know, you've seen this, uh, these videos that people make where they put candy in front of a child and then leave the room telling the child not to touch the candy. Child reaches out and touches it. Maybe picks one up and licks it. Puts it back. The temptation is too much. It's just, you know, it's, it's, you know at some point, you leave them long enough, you know at some point they're going to give in to that temptation. That's God saying, you know, do whatever you want. Just don't eat anything off of this tree. At some point, they're going to reach out and they're going to have some fruit off of that tree. Why? Because the temptation is palpable. And Eden may have one rule. There was one disobedience. And that is not just their story. That is our story. We have all lived that. But once we have the knowledge of good and evil, once we have the capacity to understand all that evil is capable of doing, and we have power, guess what happens? We have the power to be more evil. So, yeah, I am a bit of a conspiracy theorist when it comes to human government. You know why? Because humans are broken, and people in government have power. What does that equate to? It is the power to enforce your broken ideas on the rest of society. I am making the assumption that in the church, the leadership of the church, if it's not held accountable, if we're not held accountable to one another and held accountable by the fellowship, and a fellowship is not held accountable by the leadership, that we will do the wrong things because that's what we're inclined to do. The wrong things will happen. Evil will be done. This is how the dominion of darkness finds its footing. This is one of the most challenging teachings of Scripture. Satan doesn't wait at the edges of the garden for Adam and Eve to make a mistake so he can catch them on the way out. He enters into paradise. He enters into that perfect space. Evil does not sit idly by waiting for you to find it. Evil comes to you and tries to draw you into the darkness. And when we, when we allow that darkness, one deception grows another deception, and another deception grows chaos, and chaos grows despair. And each failed attempt, each time we think we've got the secret to happiness and it fails, each failed attempt at happiness leads us to take another step further away from God in pursuit of our own version of righteousness and happiness. Another outrageous truth. The end of evil is judgment and death. Now, there's a couple ways that you can take that. Because if we decide to participate in evil, then our end is judgment and death. And then that's not a very happy message. If we choose to live in Christ, 
And at some point, we believe that evil will end because of God's righteous judgment, it will be put to death. And the world will be made new again. The creation will be made new. It will be made in that goodness in which God originally made it. The, the pathway of evil will not deliver. It will never bring us what it promises. It will exile us from God, and it will put us on the wrong side of judgment. But that could be, be a fearful thing, or that could be a beautiful thing, depending on where we stand with Christ. Because another outrageous truth, one that we've been batting around here in Colossians for a few weeks now, Jesus is the supreme authority in everything. In righteousness, in truth, in sin, in judgment. He is the authority over life and death. And he has already demonstrated that he has power over both. So we come to our passage today in Colossians, verse 25 of chapter 1. Paul says, I've become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says there, there is, in fact, a secret to life. And that secret was at one time hidden. Not so much hidden as there in plain sight, but beyond our comprehension. God had a plan. The extent of that plan was hidden in our darkness, hidden in our ignorance, but now it can be known. We have to give up our love for darkness in order to know it, in order to see it, but it is there. It is an open secret, and the open secret, Paul says, is Jesus in us. And he classifies this as a mystery, because mysteries are things that can be understood in principle, but the reality of them evades our comprehension. There's a misconception here in Christian circles that the mystery of the gospel is salvation. Here's the interesting thing. Paul and other New Testament writers say in multiple places, the milk, the basics, the basics of this gospel story are things like judgment, repentance, baptism, salvation, resurrection. Those are the basics. Those are the things you're supposed to already have down pat. Do you feel like you have those already down pat? Got that all worked out, have you? They're kind of 
kind of big theological concepts. And yeah, he says, that's the milk of the word. That's the stuff that you start with. And then you're going to move on from there to understand the righteousness of God. And how are you going to do that? The mystery, he says, this is not the milk. The mystery is Jesus has supremacy in everything. And this same Jesus who is supreme in everything lives in you. Now, I can't grasp that. And I can't fully describe that. But that's not even the biggest question I have. The biggest question I have is if Jesus is supreme in everything and he lives in us, how on earth are we staying the same? How on earth have we become so boring and so predictable? How on earth can we have the creator of the universe living within us and nothing new ever happens inside of us or among us. I am amazed at the remarkable capacity of Christian people to do the same things over and over again, even when we know they don't work. To follow the same traditions and honor the same policies set decades ago, that don't work anymore and honestly probably didn't work when we formed them. Why? Because the mystery of the gospel is Christ in us. And that hasn't actually been our objective all the time. If we're not in awe of this idea that the all-powerful God creator of the universe, the one who has authority over every last thing, every idea, every bit of matter, all of nature, if we're not in awe of the idea of that God living in us, we need to check our pulse. We might be dead already. Have we settled for comfort and complacency while we are in possession of the sacred cure, even as the world around us is sick and dying. Paul says in Colossians 2, 2 and 3, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You get that? Christ is in us, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge remain hidden in him. How does that work? In Jesus, the mystery of life resides. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know what's right from wrong? The answer is hidden in Christ. If we can't solve the problem of death, no other problem we face actually matters. So what does Jesus do with his ministry? He solves the problem of death. We focus all of our attention on that. We want to make sure that because Jesus solved the problem of death, that we're on the right side of that equation. 
and that our problem of death has been solved. What we sometimes miss is that Jesus solving the problem of death is only the beginning of the journey. It's only the starting place. The work of Jesus solves the problem. But folks, in terms of what Christ has done, our salvation is the relatively easy part of the, of the whole journey. It's a free gift that he gives to us. Paul says, look, courage, love, understanding, everything about life that makes life right and good, all of those things still hidden within the mystery of Christ. Now, Christ is in you. Christ is right there. You have access to him. But the things that you need, the truth that you need, the, the mystery that still needs to be solved continues to reside within him. All the things that we're looking for are contained within the mystery of who Jesus is, the mystery of what he contains, and a mystery is a thing to be sought out. A mystery is a thing to be searched. You want salvation through Jesus Christ? You believe that he's the Son of God and you make him Lord of your life. Be buried with him and risen again. You want to know what life is actually about? You want to know what the kingdom is actually about? You want to know where contentment and happiness and goodness and rightness actually come from? You spend the rest of your life searching out the mystery of Jesus Christ. And every step, that continuous use, that continuous practice will make us more aware, will give us the wisdom and knowledge that we need for this life to be all that God calls for us to make it.